You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. You're listening to Two for Tea, and I'm your host, Iona Italia. I'm coming to you from a cottage in Suffolk at the moment, so I don't actually have my usual podcasting equipment with me here. I know our wonderful sound engineer, Justin Ward, will do a great job, so I'm not too concerned. But if the sound quality is not quite as as good as usual, then that's why, and I apologize. It's absolutely gorgeous here, though. And I'm joined today by Will Store, and Will has been on this podcast twice before, because as they say in the Twitter meme, I'm a simple person. I see a book by Will, I read it. And I've talked to him previously about his book, uh, Selfie, How the West Became Self-Obsessed, which is about the largely misguided cult of self-esteem, and also about his book, The Science of Storytelling, which I highly recommend partly because Will has one of the best reading voices of anybody I know of. And uh, so you should, I absolutely recommend you get the audiobook of that one. And just, if for nothing else, only in order to listen to Will reading excerpts of classic fiction, because you are just an amazing um, reader. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks. And uh, he's also the author of a number of other nonfiction books. I'll put a link to his website in the show notes, as well as a a brief novel, which I absolutely loved, a dark, twisted, sick little novel called The Hunger and the Howling of Killian Lone. And um, I'll put links to all of that in the show notes. And I'm here to talk to Will about his latest book, which is called The Status Game. Actually, what's the subtitle? I have my Kindle version in front of me. So um, The Status Game on Social Position and How We Use It. Welcome, Will. Welcome back. Thanks, Iona. Thanks for that lovely introduction. It's my pleasure. I'm going to begin by um, reading a section from the status games. And this is from my second favorite chapter. We'll get to what my favorite chapter is, I think, later. I'll reveal that later. But this is my second favorite chapter, which is called The Tyranny of the Cousins. And it begins, For the vast majority of our time on Earth, then, humans haven't been subject to the tyranny of leaders. Instead, we lived in fear of what anthropologists call the tyranny of the cousins. These cousins weren't necessarily actual cousins. They'd usually be clan elders that in these shallow hierarchies passed for the elite. Whilst they're thought to have almost always been men, both genders could take part in the act of deadly consensus-making. Wrightsbone, when a band coalesces to bring down a tyrant, The females may be as active as the males in the political dynamics involved. 
Some accounts even show men and women symbolically sharing responsibility for an execution. In one, a man was beaten by a band of males who then fired poison arrows into his body until he looked like a porcupine. When he was dead, the women stepped forward and stabbed his corpse with spears. This might sound fair enough, if harsh. If a player attempts to dominate a game through terror, that player is taken out. Execution is the ultimate humiliation, a rejection by the game that's physical as well as psychological, not to mention final. But unfortunately for the history of the human race, it's not quite as straightforward as this. The problem is, there aren't two separate and easily identifiable forms of player, tyrants and non-tyrants. We all contain the capacity for tyranny. Who's the tyrant? And who's the victim? can often be difficult to tell. The cousins themselves could be brutal. The same hunter-gatherer groups that came together to bloodily cancel tyrants also used deadly force against those who broke many other of their game's rules. Players could be executed for theft and hoarding of meat, for malicious sorcery, for unauthorised viewing of the magic trumpets, and for treading on the men's secret path. The games we evolved to play could be oppressive and terrifying. Anthropologist Professor Richard Wrongham describes us as having lived in a social cage of tradition in which players lived or died by their willingness to conform. The power of these cousins was absolute. If you did not conform to their dictates, you were in danger. Reading that back, it, it I feel that that passage might not be the easiest one to understand context, but that will give you a little bit of a taste of uh, some of the things that are happening in the book. Um, But maybe let's begin by taking a step back, because you organise the book, um, or part of the way you structure the book is around three different kinds of status games, ones involving um, dominance, um, games involving competence and games involving virtue. So let's start there. Talk to talk to us about those those three forms of status games. Yeah. So so I guess I just begin by just mentioning, just sort of pointing out that um, we've been competing for status, you know, for millions of years since before we were human. And the, the first of those games that you mentioned, dominance games, are the ones that we have been playing for the longest. Um, dominance games are much more characteristic of how animals tend to play status games. And that's with violence, uh, with coercion, bullying, you know, threat. Um, any, any time where we're kind of, we, we, we force other people to attend to us in status, uh, to, sorry, to attend to us in, to, to treat us as status full, um, that's dominance. Um, but then when we, um, uh, you know, became human when we when we started living together communally and working out how to do that. Um, we started playing different kinds of games, and these were kind of games of prestige. So, um, part of um, you know being in a group and living successfully in a coalition is that we there has to be incentives for us to want to behave in such a way that we privilege the needs of the group over our kind of selfish selves. And so, these prestige games are the way evol- evolution has kind of worked out. It's like a reward system that kind of compels us to beha- behave kind of pro-socially. You know? um, and there, there are two ways of earning prestige. Um, the first way is with virtue. So when we're virtuous in the group, so that's when we you know, share meat or are courageous or um, 
you know, people who follow rule, rules really well, but also people enforce the rules that they're virtuous too. So, so that's one way of being valuable to the group and therefore earning kind of prestige by being virtuous, but also by being um, competent, by being just really good at your um, tasks, whether that's being a hunter or a honey finder or a storyteller or a sorcerer. Um, so, so that's the other way of earning prestige by being kind of useful. So, so those, those kind of three ways that we've sort of central ways that we've evolved to pursue status, dominance, virtue, and success that, that kind of defined human life, you know, 20, 30,000 years ago. And it, and it also defines human life today. If you, if you kind of look out into the world that, that, you know, that, that that's still what we're doing and that's still how we, we, we're, we're kind of generating kind of the form of social life. To what extent do you think that dominance games are um, the status behavior that we share with other apes, whereas prestige games and virtue games are unique to to our species? No, they're not unique. No, they, um, so they're not unique. Um, it, it was quite interesting when I was doing my research. I think for a long time it was thought that they were unique. But but for example, in, in elephant groups, so a, a wise old matriarch elephant um, will... Um, lead its uh, in a herd to, to a source of water. Mm. So, so, so that's a kind of form of prestigious status. There's other, uh, there's other elephants that are allowing themselves to be influenced by this matriarch because it has this expertise, this knowledge of where this water is. And, and of course, in, you know, in chimpanzee troops, um, uh, uh, social life is, is relatively complex for, for an animal species. And so, you know, a chimpanzee might kind of, you know, use dominance and force its way up to the top of the troop but once it's there it has to it has to you know be a peacemaker and kind of um play, play kind of very kind of canny, canny coalitional game um so so so, so prestige uh, these kind of prestige forms of status aren't unique to humans mm. but we've certainly really taken them and run with them um in a, in a way that no other um, species of animal has do you think there's any kind of um parallel between that tr- those tripartite forms of status games and the the things that um, that are mentioned in the book, the rise of victimhood culture, Jason Manning and Bradley Campbell's book, they talk about three forms of culture: an honor culture, a dignity culture, and a victimhood culture. And those kinds of cultures do seem to map very closely onto your three forms of status games. Yeah, so so certainly an honor culture. Um, you, you know, uh, you know, mafias are kind of honor cultures, and um, you, you know, I think a lot of the Southern European and Southern US, not United States, have these honor cultures where um, uh, pe- people's honor is taken extremely seriously, and if you insult somebody, then you're expected to respond to them with aggression. Yeah, yeah, certainly these are kind of these these are. Um, uh, cultures that have an emphasis have a stronger emphasis on dominance, so, so these kind of dominance behaviours. Where, where um, uh, I, you know, I'd never thought of it in that way, but that, but that is certainly true. Yeah, that, 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 I think that, that that's right. But but victimhood is a really interesting one, and and from the perspective of you know in in in, in part of the status game, what I do is I kind of try try to kind of in brief. Um, Tell the kind of sort of a brief history of the human world, but through the through the kind of perspective of, this, of, of the, these kind of shifting status games, and if, if dominance was what we were doing, you know, for millions of years before we were human, um, um, virtue, you know, the, uh, life was very much dominated by kind of virtue games um, for all of that time when we were kind of hunter gatherers, I think, and even we settled down, you know, religion is a virtue game. 
Um, uh, and I think that changed um, dramatically around the time of the you know, enlightenment, the industrial revolution, and the emphasis shifted onto success games. So individual competence and success became, you know, a, a, a much more of a, a, of a way that people would be encouraged to pursue status. Um, and, and I think what we've seen um, since the, the global financial crisis, um, I, I think, you know, as I talk about in Selfie, from the 1980s onwards, when the kind of neoliberal Thatcher-Reagan revolution happened, we became even more success focused. It was, you know, life especially famously in the eighties was about, you know, individual success and greed is good. Uh, but, but, but I think what's happened since the um, global financial crisis is, is, we, is we've seen a slight reversion back into that kind of virtue space where people have been disillusioned with success-based status. And, 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 and we're, and we're now seeing this reversion back into people pursuing status um, for reasons of virtue. Yeah, I was, I mean, I was thinking about your book. I had your book very much in mind during the recent kerfuffle about the um, bad art friend. Did you follow that particular article? I didn't read the piece. I've, I've read some of the commentary on it, um, but but I haven't actually read the piece yet. But 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 I, I'm aware that it's it's about somebody that donated a kidney, and and because in the book I write about people who don't who don't who donate kidneys and, and very rarely do it anonymously. So it's, it's uh, and and I'm aware that it, it's plugged into this kind of culture wars sort of themes. It seems is that right? Yes. So. Um... I'll just give a very brief account of it because I think it might uh, touch on some of the themes uh, from your book very nicely. Mm. So it all takes place among a group of writers, of writers of kind of short stories and um, creative nonfiction and things. Um, most of them not 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 very successful writers who are in a Facebook group together. And uh, one of the writers has uh, donated a kidney, um, and it's a um, what's called an altruistic kidney donation. That that is the official term, which means that she didn't donate a kidney to a, a fam close family member, but she just gave her kidney to be used by whoever needed it. Um, mm. And she created a Facebook group of her writing writer friends and put them all into this group. And the group was titled Discussions of um, Dawn was her name, Dawn's Kidney Donation. So she really tried to get some recognition and status from that group for this, mm. for this action. There's nevertheless very good action. So status games can motivate you to also do good things, of course. And the people in the group got really pissed off and especially, uh, especially one of the other writers who then wrote a story about Dawn. And she made her story all about how, uh, basically when white people donate kidneys, that's white saviorism and it's, uh, racist was her implication. Yeah. And oh, she, dear. as a mixed race person, found it sort of morally repugnant that Dawn had done this thing and boasted about it in the Facebook group. So she seemed to be attempting through this story to claim the moral status for herself. And this, this has, has really kind of backfired, I think. There were other issues involved, but uh, from a status point of view, that's how I would analyze it. And the really interesting thing for me and the thing that is very familiar to me is how, how, com how incredibly competitive 
um, and Katty, the women were in this Facebook group towards each other and the kind of internecine struggle within the group for status to be the, the cool person and the most praised person in this tiny Facebook group, while none of them were actually receiving much money or fame or status for their writing from the outside world. Yeah, I mean, that, 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 that's fascinating. And it, and it is, you know, it's, it's, it's classic. It's, it's classic status games. I mean, as, as you know, in the book, I talk about a lot about social media and, and, and this idea that you know, we're very good at blaming Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey for creating all the toxicity online. But toxicity is what you're going to get when you, you know, in, in a sense, when you connect people together, they're going to compete for status. And sometimes that's going to be ugly. I mean, the, the other thing I'd say about that is that is, 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 is too, the, the reason it's sort of complex is because on the one hand, um, the donor was just doing what people do. Um, you, you know, you, you've, I, I think people look down their noses a little bit at status pursuit and they, they don't understand that, you know, status is a fundamental human need. And, you know, that it's, it's just like a psychological need, um, like food and water is a, is a physical need. You know, w- without enough status, we become depressed and even our physical health stu- suffers. It's, it's essential to our well-being that we feel of value to people. Um, that's, uh, and so, so we need it. And so it's an important thing. And you, you, as I said before, one of the ways that evolution has made us human is by creating this this natural and automatic incentive system to, to, that compels us into behaving in altruistic ways. When, when we do things that are selfless for the group, for other people, we feel good. You know, we we, we feel statusful in ourselves, and we you know, and and we you know, we are treated as heroes. We are treated as heroic by other people. So 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 this donor might have been being a little bit gauche about it and a bit pushy about it, but she was simply being human. Uh, you know, expecting um, uh, to, to, to get kind of status rewards for doing what is, let's be honest, you know, it's a pretty incredible thing yeah, to give away a yeah. kidney. Having surgery is, is no joke and, and getting rid of a kidney is no joke. So, you know, f- fair enough. It, but, but, but the other thing that's very interesting is, is the other thing I write about in the book is that, um, that, that, that humans, because humans are incredibly interested um, in their own status and because status is relative, that is, you know, so if people in our group suddenly feel like they're getting a lot of status, that that, that diminishes our status. We're unbelievably chippy about uh, the, the, the status claims of the people around us. We don't like it when people are demanding or expecting or appear to be behaving as if they're automatically they're kind of deserving of status. So, so you know, and anthropologists sometimes call that big shot behavior. And, you know, in the book I write about this, is like there, there, are, there are lots of checks and balances in, in hunter-gatherer tribes to make sure that the people don't rise too high up. And, you know, people often say that hunter-gatherer tribes are egalitarian, and, and, and that's relatively true. But they're egalitarian not because people don't care about status in hunter-gatherer tribes. They're egalitarian because they care a lot about status uh, and, and everyone's making sure, you know, um, obsessively that nobody, nobody sort of rises too high. So, so all of this is going on by the sounds of things in this bad art friend um, story. It's all status games. And, it, and the way that people are behaving is very much rooted in our, you know, deep history, our evolution uh, as a tribal people. Mm, yeah. You talk about um, you talk about the way in which people not only um, compete directly within the status games, but use a kind of enforcement of the rules to 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 gain status. Can you talk about that phenomenon of the cousins and the tyranny of the cousins 
um, that I've, I've tried and failed to read a relevant passage from earlier. No, it was great. It was, it was great. No, it was perfect. It was just the right bit. Yeah, a bit, just to explain it and give it a bit of context. Yes, please. Um, you know, w- w- one of the reasons that I wanted to write the book was because, you know, I, I kind of, I've kind of in selfie wrote about the beginning of the culture wars. I, I, I wrote about the story of Austin Heinz, who was this, you know, white male technologist who, who, who was accused of um, misogyny and ended up being hounded to, in, in, in uh, you know how it certainly seems handed to death by his critics um and you know the culture wars was very much going on then as i was, as I was thinking about this book and, and and it was one of the things that i wanted to understand this phenomenon from the perspective because it seemed to me a lot of it was um, rooted in status and and this stuff about the cousins was really the the, the kind of bit of research that broke it open for me and, and this is the research that that, that that shows kind of counterintuitively, perhaps, that, that, that we're not actually we haven't actually evolved to live under the power of leaders. You know, we, we live in a world today of superstar CEOs and presidents and prime ministers and queens and kings and, you know, celebrities. And, and, and it feels like we, we you know, we, 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 we have this automatic preponderance to, to 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 slot in under underneath kind of all powerful leaders. But it's actually not the case that the groups in which we evolved um most often didn't have kind of big man style leaders in inverted commas. Um, they, they, they were much more ruled by a form of consensus. And the form that consensus took was you'd, you just, you'd have kind of tribal elders who are, who are, who are, who are known by anthropologists sometimes to call them the cousins. And, and, and the elders would kind of come together and make these decisions, um, um, uh, you know, and discuss. And, and, and it would very much be, uh, you know, the, the rules and the enforcement of the rules would very much come out of a process of discussion um, and gossip um, and, um, and this sense that this kind of decision was, um, you know, forming itself you know throughout the group, and there would be a kind of a sense of consensus build so so, 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 so yeah i mean so, so, so that's that's where the talk we didn't live under the tyranny of leaders, we lived under the tyranny of the cousins and 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 so 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 really what that means is that we you know we've, we've evolved to fear the group, the group was the thing that had power and and um you know as part of that research it, it really reminded me of what we see on social media you know because once again so all social media is is like millions of people connected together and being permitted being being given a platform to compete for status dominance virtue and success that's what that's what that's what social media is. It's kind of bullying um, people showing off their moral, political beliefs and people showing off their achievements. Um, uh, that, that, that's essentially what it is. Um, and, and, and you see this kind of cousiny behavior on social media when, when, when kind of cancel culture events and mobbing events happen. The, the, this sense that kind of cousins, you know, elite figures on social media begin, begin the gossip and begin begin telling these stories and begin pointing fingers and 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 the moral outrage kind of builds and 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 the, and, and this sense of you know apparent consensus builds about uh, about um this person's you know evil intent um which eventually um you know triggers into this kind of mob mob attack and in the book I you know I compare um, a case from the anthropological literature of this poor guy who was accused of um, killing somebody with sorcery and ended up being killed and eaten to, to an actual mobbing event a couple of years ago, this sort of sort of quasi-famous event that, involving the knitting community in America. And, and they're incredibly similar. Like I, the, the, the parallels between the kind of behaviours there are 
are extraordinarily similar be, being as one took place on the internet mostly in america and one took place in a in a tribe in Papua, Papua new guinea so it's just i mean the the social media isn't um i mean it isn't enabling these tendencies so much as just changing the um changing the context of uh where the village is and who the who are fellow villagers are yeah you can see a tribe as a gossip network um you know a, 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 the tribes in which we've are pretty small so it's a pretty small gossip network and if you started behaving in a bad way and the cousins started gossiping about you and moral at rest started building you were in trouble and and social media is simply an international gossip network it's a huge gossip network uh, and so you know it's like a huge tribe it's a, and so you know obviously you know i i i agree that zuckerberg and dorsey etc having you know they've not helped this kind of behavior they've certainly empowered it um but they haven't created it you know i, I think they've built their platforms and the platforms have basically and by instinct and trial and error they've molded the platforms around what is inherent human behavior I mean, it's hilarious when you as, as you know when i look in the book at, the, at in the 90s when the, these tech utopians you know the wired magazine crowd were were writing about you know what what they saw as this social media revolution that was about to happen, and they, they they really saw it as this utopia, as this place where there would be no hierarchy, where, where people could believe and say anything, and nobody would judge them. And it's extraordinary because it's literally the opposite; it's the truth. Um, you know, that's and it's this it's it's this fundamental mistake people make about human behavior that that, that inside we're all wonderful and, and amazing, and it's only these evil dastardly you know, capitalists and tech moguls that, 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 that ruin everything with their evil plans. And it's simply not true. It's deeply naive, I think. Mm. I mean, we have improved, though. Um, I, I am a Pinkerian optimist about this because um, we are cancelling people on social media, which is not good, but we're no, we used to be literally burning people alive. So that is progress in a sense. Absolutely, and, and and in you know in the book I kind of track this and 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 you know you know from the perspective of the, the you know status that the, the, that kind of Pinkerian story becomes a story of us you know breaking through this long um, dark period in which we were dominated by virtue games. You know w w when status is awarded for behaving in a virtuous way, it, 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 it's quite an impressive world. It's like you know you know you you, you, you know you, you are subservient. You follow the rules. Uh, you enforce the rules. Uh, you're not particularly ambitious for yourself. In, you know these religious forms of virtue game are all about. Don't expect rewards in this life. Your rewards are in the afterlife. Um, whether that's a karmic religion or a Judeo-Christian Judeo -Christian kind of afterlife-based religion, and then with the industrial revolution, we had this um, this, this this incredible oh, and you know the Enlightenment. Um, you know, I, I, I sort of begin begin this story in in what's known as the Republic of Letters, which is, as far as I'm aware, the the, the kind of uh, the, the kind of seeds of these movements, which is this. Um, at the time, it was it, it was it was mostly aristocrats who exploited the early Western European postal uh, network to start swapping ideas, and and uh, there became this status game, which was in, in which status was awarded for the discovery of new and useful knowledge, and and that never happened before in this way. And so they would, they, they would send letters and pamphlets to each other and, and expect their ideas to be tested, questioned, improved. 
uh, and it was the beginning of the you know the scientific revolution. It was the beginning of the Enlightenment, and this eventually spread down um, from the aristocratic classes uh, down. You know, you know, beginning in um, Western Europe, um, uh, and so was, so status began to be awarded for the discovery of new and useful knowledge, and and that's the Industrial Revolution, and and, and so. Success games became dominant. Success games took over from the playing of virtue games as the kind of dominant way that we earn status um, uh, um, in the world. And, and um, yeah, absolutely agree. It's been an enormous improvement because, you know, perhaps counterintuitively, uh, as I'm, I'm sure um, um, Pinkarians would agree, uh, if you want to make the world a better place, you don't necessarily play virtue games. You actually play success games. It's it's success games that are rescuing us from the uh COVID pandemic and its success games that are improving uh, life expectancy, um, you know, lifting us out of poverty and so on. 100%. And I was thinking about the way in which, um, I mean, this feeds into what you say about the enlightenment um, and the shift over to uh, success games. I mean, in, in science, one of the things that enables science to advance is scientists' jealousy of each other. and. Mm. Um, the fact that when you assert something, it will be um, subject to rigorous scrutiny by your rivals. And that is, that is part of what enables um, science to advance. Science is a kind of open game in the sense that, in theory, anybody can examine the data, do the experiments come to their own conclusions, publish their work, etc. I know it doesn't work exactly like that in practice, but in theory, whereas these virtue games are, you talk about tight, I think, tight games or tight groups. Yeah, so, 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 so um, yeah, the, the, the way that fits in is this, this is this is this extraordinary work by the, the, the best person who, who's known for doing this work is, is, a, is the psychologist professor. Michelle Gelfand, uh, and she she, she um, um, researches uh, what she calls tight versus loose cultures. Um, so so, so um, a, a tight culture is one which is much more conformist. Um, uh, that, that they're rule followers, rule makers rather than rule breakers in in her terminology. Um, uh, and loose cultures are much um, uh, you know the opposite, less conformist. Um, 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 and so if you think about the, the northern states of the US are relatively loose. The southern states are relatively tight. Germany, relatively tight. The UK, relatively loose. T- tighter states are, are tend to be more superstitious and more, more um, suspicious of outsiders. Uh, there's, there's, she's found some extraordinary things, including that in tight nations, the clocks in public spaces are much more likely to be in sync than in loose cultures where they're more likely to be kind of a, a bit crazy. So, so, so what I did in the book was I kind of expanded this concept to, 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 to kind of fit, because I think it, I think it also works with groups in general. She writes about cultures, but it also works in group with groups in general. And, and so, so, so in the book, I write about, you know, tight games versus loose games. And, you know, I, I think this is a really good definition, a really useful definition of, of what a tyranny is. So, um, you know, be, be, because of our groupish, you know, coalition-based evolution, we have these basic um, psychological needs, and sometimes described as getting along and getting ahead. We want to connect into groups and then earn status within those groups. Um, and so, it's, so this is what's driving lots of our kind of unconscious behaviour, the need to get along um, um, and get ahead. And, 
you know, in, in, in the modern world, we can we, we can join lots of different groups and get get along and get ahead. And and, and as, as as I argue in the book, I think a healthy healthy life is one in which, in which we're playing lots of different games. You know, we have lots of different status games we're playing, lots of routes to connection and status. Um, and I think. Um, the kind of the tighter we become, the fewer games that we're playing. And if you take that to its logical kind of end degree, you get a cult. And I think to me, the cult is the ultimate tight game because what the cult is saying is that we are your only source of connection and status. Mm. There will be no other source of connection and status for you. And that's why cults typically want you to want you to disconnect um, relations, even with friends and family, uh, you know, parents, um, and so on, because they will not allow any other source of connection and status. And they're incredibly tight, you know, to, 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 to the point of um, 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 dictating, you know, to, to the nth degree, all of your, not, not only your, your external behaviours, but also your, your internal thoughts. And, you know, and in the book, I tell the story of um, the Heaven's Gate cult, an extraordinarily tight game, um, uh, you know, so, so it ticks all the boxes, really. Essentially, if you followed the rules of the um, of the cult, the belief was that you were going to get swept, you're going to get picked up by a UFO at some stage and enter the what they call the evolutionary level above human. So you're going to be so high in status, you're going to be essentially superhuman, which um, you know, is similar to what the communists and the Nazis were also promising, two other very tight games. And, and they had rules such things like... The, 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 it was dictated the exact amount of toothpaste, toothpaste you should put in your toothbrush, um, the, exactly how you um, were to shave um, uh, down. Um, uh, you, you should shave up, you should shave up your face, not down your face. Yeah, exactly how you should cook scrambled eggs. They had to be dry. Uh, they had to be um, dry but not burnt. I think was a thing. Exactly how much bath water you could sit in. So, 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 so that's that's the cult. That's the ultimate kind of tight game. Um, but, uh, but and, and, you, and you can sort of just see, you know, status games on a spectrum. A, a terrorist group is a, is a tight cult. The, the, the tight group, sorry. The Nazis and the communists were, were tight groups. Um, the political, the kind of political play that we see often on Twitter, those are people playing very tight virtue games. You know, very conformist um, um, uh, and, and very aggressive, as, as tight games often are. Yeah, you say in the book that. Part of the recipe for a happier, fulfilled life is not to invest all of your status-seeking ego in one particular game, and I think that really nicely put you really nicely put your finger on a criticism that I've always had but never been quite never articulated so well um, of people who say that if you don't. If people aren't religious, if you don't have, if you, society becomes, sorry, society becomes secular and people are no longer following religion, then they will lack structure and meaning in their life. And they will have to immerse themselves completely in some other cult, such as many of the, these critics of people on the right who suggest that the alternative cult is going to be an extreme, a kind of uber woke, um, extreme form of uh, social justice ideology. And I've always countered that by saying, well, you don't have to have only one source of meaning. You can find it meaningful to sing in your choir. You can find it meaningful to dance. You can find it meaningful to geek out about Star Trek. Um, <laughs> and 
all of those are in general looser games. And although people can end up investing, investing quite a lot in those games psychologically, and especially um, I see people really trying to find a route to, to status in those games when the usual routes are blocked to them. So I, people who are, who are not very good dancers, for example, was a classic thing that men who found it difficult to find dance partners in Argentine tango, mm -hmm. when I, I taught tango and was a professional dancer for mm -hmm. uh, about a decade. And I would, you would often find men who were not terribly good dancers and who couldn't get partners um, and who didn't get kind of recognition for their dance skills would be on Facebook, as it was back in those days. We were all doing these arguments on Facebook, not on Twitter. <laughs> uh, that really dates me. Um, would be on Facebook pontificating about the tech, the, the theory of the dance technique and getting into these incredibly heated arguments and For women, I would see similar things going on, except that the women would be angry about things like who was appointed to bring the cookies to the dance <laughs> event. Uh, you know, a completely marginal thing. And this is a dance event where people don't even, uh, often don't even eat the cookies because many dancers are, are, are watching their weight <laughs> extremely carefully mm. or, you know, they're too absorbed in the actual dancing and they have it they're focused on something else but nevertheless that became a, a you know a source of huge conflict so i do see people investing a lot of ego and getting very unhappy over these unwinnable kind of minor status games um but i i don't see anybody committing suicide over those games um because it's it's clear you know that bringing the cookies obviously isn't the main point of your life <laughs> yeah i think that's true uh, and you know it, it has made me kind of understand the kind of kind of you know god is dead era um uh, in a much clearer way that that, that 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 actually you know what religion always was was a status game and it it, it had a had a had a huge function in making people whose lives were you know very mostly miserable and small and hopeless uh, you know life was extremely tough you know, for, uh, as we know before the industrial revolution for the vast majority of people and, and gave them status you know and, you know they, they they believed that they were going to heaven or being reincarnated as a prince or, or or whatever it was going to be if they followed the rules and followed them well status would you know significant status would be their reward and um, you know, I, I, I do wonder, um, um, uh, you know, and it's kind of an open question. I, you know, I touch upon it in the book, but, but, but it's such a big question um, uh, 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 about what's happened to the quality of the status that life offers these days. Mm -hmm. and, and the place I touched on in the book is, you know, back when I was a journalist, I, I, I um, was doing a profile of um, his name was Josh Brandon, and he was he was Britain's most successful male escort. There's a big story about this guy, fascinating guy. And I went back to the old mining village, a mining town in which he was brought up in the kind of in rural Wales, and met his family and friends. And you know, was telling the story about why he felt he wanted to move, to, to, to leave this town, which is called Armford. And, and so Armford was, um, uh, you know, what, what once a mine is, I said, once a mining town, and the mines closed down. Um, 
But even when the mines closed down, it was full of independent businesses. The high street was like butchers and bakers and candlestick makers. So so lots of locally owned businesses. But then what happened is the Tesco's moved in. And, you know, for non-British listeners, Tesco's is, is like a Walmart, you know, big supermarket. And when Tesco's moved in, all the local businesses essentially shut down. And one of Brenner's friends said to me, and it really moved me, and it really just made me see this whole business in a new way. He, he just said, you know, what we've what we've got now is just young people who who've just got a life um, just that is just spent going up and down along the aisles, and that's their life. And he said, you know, there was a certain pride in going to work for your family butchers, and, and then you take over the butchers. And he says, no, but you don't get anything out of working behind the Tesco's butcher's counter. I'm paraphrasing him. Uh, and, you know, and I thought, God, you know, that is absolutely true. And, and, that's, and that's a form of deprivation that, that doesn't show up in the statistics, um, you know, because as far as the statistics is concerned, people are still being employed in that town. It's just that they're not being employed in the old um, businesses. They're being employed in the Tesco's now. But actually, there is a de- deprivation now because as this person quite rightly said, there's pride or there's status in I've gone to work for my parents' butcher shop that's been there since 1843 and one day I'm going to take it over and I'm going to get to, to make all the changes that I think it needs to be made. We're going to go organic and whatever. And there just isn't that for most people in working for the Tesco's butcher's counter. So I, I, I do think that's a, that's a huge thing for the kind of post-religious landscape, the fact that modern corporate status games, we end up booking over the cookies. And, you know, I don't know how I don't think that's good for us. And I, and I do wonder if this great kind of retreat to virtue that we've seen post global financial crisis and, and, you know, manifesting most obviously in the culture wars, you know, is that part of this thing that people just don't get significant status? Um out of their kind of capitalistic lives anymore. Mm-hmm. I think that may well be the case. And I wonder whether, um, in general, there's been such a shift and the pandemic, of course, has not helped, but it was already, things were already going very strongly in that direction, away from in-person interactions to online interactions. And I think that people are looking for the same things, for the same kind of connection and recognition, which is a, a kind of form of status in a sense, being listened to. And they're looking for that online, but online, what you get is a kind of aspartame version. Um, <laughs> and so uh, there's a, um, there's, there's a grade inflation going on, uh, you know, in order to feel that kind of sense of status that you could get from a holding forth, as my uncles used to do when I was growing up, they would sit there blethering away and people would have to listen to them talking a load of nonsense down at the pub or something. And Mm. that would give them a sense of kind of pride and status. And to get that same feeling, um, you know, in later life, they were having arguments on Facebook. But Facebook doesn't it's my it's my belief. Facebook doesn't give you the same level of reward or Twitter or whatever. And therefore, you're, tr- you keep trying to rack up more and more and more and more likes. It's like, you know, the, it's like the currency in Bolivia. Um, suddenly you need a wheelbarrow worth <laughs> of likes to buy one kind of iota of status. And, uh, the yeah. price is constantly rising. Yeah, I, I, and, I, and, I, and I think the nature of the platforms, um, you know, encourages it. I mean, we, one of the things I thought was so fascinating was, was when you're reading about, so, so some of the way the brain processes 
kind of reality and and and, and this this understanding that the brain processes um you know our environment as as one neurosis describes it as, as a reward space and and um you, you know it's like when you're playing a computer game um and it's pac-man cookies or or or, or it's mario kart and gold coins you, you know that 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 that's that's one way that the brain passes our reality is, is look at it it has this very powerful um and chippy status detection system they call it um in which in which it kind of it, it kind of a set you know it, it kind of assigns status value to you know, to objects, to watches and flashy shoes, and uh, but also to appearance and tone of voice and body language and belief and behaviour. So, 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 so it's assigning all these um, all these things a, a status value. Um, even th- th- there's a, um, a, 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 a a frequency in our spoken voice that's not possible to consciously hear that adjusts itself. Um, um, it, 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 to, to the person that we're talking to, and there's this kind of a status kind of um um setting that goes on where, where one will set and one will defer to the other so so, so, so the brain is it's got this very powerful set of systems in which it's kind of detecting where we sit versus other people whenever we meet other people and these are stripped away on social media all we've got is a written sentence pretty much um so there's all this incredibly complex evolved stuff going on this negotiation going on between people when they meet in person which is just stripped away and i and i, and I think that's why it's, it's it's so easy to become triggered by a comment on social media because the tone of voice isn't there the respectful look in the eye isn't there the you know the, the body language isn't there um and, and this is you know that, that that stuff is it has evolved for a reason and it's evolved to keep us cooperating so so yeah it's 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 um it's a terrible environment for um um for, for human interaction because because you cannot strip the need for status and in you know the need for connection you can't strip that away from human interaction mm, yeah I think, I mean, I could say a ton more about this, but um, I want to shift away from this topic to my favorite chapter of the book, which was about the the Nazis. And um, oh. <laughs> I, I just love the Nazis. Um, don't quote me on that. Um, but um, oh, it's a it's a an ongoing preoccupation of your work is why. People who are not necessarily stupid believe, uh, believe ridiculous things, and why people yeah. who are not necessarily psychopaths do evil things. Yeah. What are the kind of, what do those people have in common with all of us? So that's something that, it, it's something actually which you and the writer Ewan Morrison, who's a personal friend of mine, have very much in common. Um, there's a lot of overlap in your, in your work on this. But something you look at in your book, for example, The Heretics, um, mm. I think it's called The Heretics, um, yeah, which right. is yeah, about yeah. people believing impossible, unscientific, crazy things. Mm. And um, you've also looked at how people get involved in cults. And part of that is that we we really are wired to desire status and it is absolutely necessary to our well-being, even to our physical well-being. And maybe we can talk a little bit about that, but it's, uh, you know, within the group, our status determines whether we are sheltered or unsheltered, whether we, how much we get to eat, you know, our thriving is, is an evolutionary level dependent on, very dependent on status. Um, and so, a, when people offer us status, 
it makes sense to us to take it, even when it's the status is offered by somebody like Hitler. Um. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, I'm glad you mentioned that chapter. When, when I did an early draft of the book, somebody said, why are you just telling us stuff about the Nazis that we already know? And I thought, I don't think people no, already know this. No, I thought it was a very different and I, I thought it was a, a very unusual take on um, on the Nazis. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I feel validated that you've said that. Yeah, because nobody else has mentioned. I thought this was going to be such a controversial chapter because there's a whole two pages on all the good things Hitler did, and I, and I thought, well, I have all, I have all the stuff in this book. This is what's going to get me into trouble. But literally, no one's mentioned the stuff. About so, 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 yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm happy to talk about this. So, 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 yeah, as you say, the, the starting point is that um, that. Um, survival and reproduction, the most fundamental urge of kind of any human thing, need of any human thing, you know, is connected to our status and always has been. The more status that we get, the, you know, the more food, the safer our sleeping sites, um, the, the better access to, to, to resources, the greater our choice of mates. So, so it's this basic heuristic, you know, get status and everything else gets better. So, so, so it really is fundamental to our, to, to, to our survival, which is why when we feel that we're dropping in status, we begin to panic and we, begin to, and we even begin to get physically sick. Um, and this, the second thing you need to understand, I think, to understand this Nazi argument is, 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 is that there are two, there, there is, we're essentially competing for status simultaneously in two domains. The, the first way is sort of individually against our peers, you know, so, 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 so within our groups, within our, within our coalitions, within our games, um, you know, we, we're kind of jostling for status with the people around us. Um, but, 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 no, but no less important, perhaps even more important, are the fact that our games themselves are a source of status and our games are in competition with rival games. So, so. Um, you know, think about is, football is a, is a status game. You know, when, I, when, when, when our team wins, we personally feel great, even though we only watched it on the telly. Um, and, and when our win loses, we personally feel terrible. We feel as if we've done something terrible when our, when our football team has lost, or at least we would if we were interested in football. I'm assuming you're not um, no. <laughs> particularly either, but that's essentially how it works. But I play chess, um, which is a kind of... Uh, you know, yeah. ultimate pointless status status game. Yeah, exactly. Right? I mean, uh, you know, the games that we play are just using the circuitry that evolved to play status games. So, 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 so yeah, I mean, you know, so, 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 so yeah. So, so, so with the Nazis, I mean, uh, uh, the, the other thing is is that people tend to, to suffer particularly badly when they're uh, you know a bit grandiose and narcissistic. When, when you when a grandiose or narcissistic kind of person feels that they're not getting the status they deserve um they really do lash out in, in terrible ways and there's a whole chapter on spree killers serial killers terrorists as examples of this so so, so going on to the going on to the nazis i mean all of this is exactly what you see in the in the build-up to the uh, build-up to the second world war and the holocaust um in, in, you know a, a grandiose nation before world war one was germany and for good reason you know that they, they were that they, they were the most successful um, country in continental europe um incredibly technologically and scientifically advanced industrially successful financially successful um uh, and felt um uh, they, they were robbed they, they should have won the first world war and they were kind of robbed of it and, and then were completely humiliated by this treaty of versailles um, which, which which kind of robbed them of their kind of resources and tipped them into this um, uh, incredibly um, uh, catastrophic economic um, situation, uh, and so you know. Uh, <laughs> You know, I, 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 I'm 46. I've, I've been raised in the post World War II era in in, in, a, in a country that's kind of obsessed with 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 World War II and kind of fretting about how it could possibly happen. And, and the story that we've always been told is that 
well, the question's always been phrased at, framed as, how could this cultured, smart, successful country um, become this awful, racist, violent place? Um, and it's framed as if, as, if, as, if, as if the kind of highness of Germany um, makes that kind of descent counterintuitive. But I argue that the, the kind of the high statusness you know, is an essential part of what happened because they were up there and then suddenly in a matter of years, they were at, at the bottom and they were humiliated again and again and again and again. And, and, and we're raised to think, you know, some bizarre things. And you know, one that, that, that basically Hitler was like the Jack Dorsey or the Mark Zuckerberg of Germany, this evil character that came in and hypnotized the nation with his evil, with his, you know, with his, with, with his charismatic eyes and his incredible speeches. And they kind of um, brainwashed a nation. But that's not what happened at all. I mean, Hitler came in and he promised status. He promised, um, you know, he promised the restoration of Germany's in inverted commas, rightful place um, uh, on the level of kind of world nations um, to to restore their economy, to to bring back order, um, to bring, you know, to bring back pride and, you know, and and to lead Germany into this kind of Third Reich, this this, this incredible um, um, glittering kind of world conquering future. So he promised status. He promised this um, uh, this humiliated nation uh, the restoration of their rank. And not only did he do that, he, he delivered it. Um, uh, uh, you know, he, he you know under under the the Nazis, um, uh, the, the economy was um, restored. Um, he, uh, he, as I say in the book, there's, there's there's a kind of dizzying list of things that he did for the for, 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 for the for the for the um, for the German people. Um, which I'd certainly never, never read about before, because I think it's a bit taboo. Because we're so we're so possessed with this story of e- evil Nazis, and of course they did. I'm not saying they didn't do completely disgusting and terrible things. Of course they did, uh, but but you can't understand the rise of the Nazis without understanding the fact that Hitler not only promised to restore their status, he achieved it too in no short order. So as well as things like you know the motorway system and uh, the restoration of the economy, he also you know, he rolled back the Treaty of Versailles. He took back um, the territories that, that were taken from him with, with, with you know, he, 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 you know, without any resistance from the Allies. You know, he 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 kind of humiliated the, the forces that he humiliated the, the nation, and and those famous scenes of of Germans kind of flooding the streets in the hundreds of thousands, but you know, treating Hitler as if he was a, a returned god. Uh, uh, tended to happen when when, when that's when, when that happened when he he he, he you know he, he achieved some uh, extraordinary new victory against the French and the you know the British and the people behind um, the Treaty of Versailles. So, so so you know if you understand what happened from the perspective of um, the, the status game, it all becomes you know un, really explicable i believe the, the rise of the nazis i mean the, the other thing that surprised me looking at the history was that again we, we, you know we raised to we, we raised to have an emphasis on the anti-semitism of the nazis um because we live in this we, we live in a world today you know post uh, you know post world war ii uh, post civil rights era in which we, we, we're incredibly um interested um obsessively interested in um uh, you know issues of race and bigotry uh, but, but actually hitler um his anti-Semitic rhetoric um, uh, reduced um, when, when they were in power because it just wasn't playing well with the German middle classes and um, uh, who were much more interested in the restoration of Germany's um, status than they were in 
uh, this story about the Jews. And, you know, just to say, just to emphasize, none of this is to (laughs) is to underplay the the, the evilness of the Nazis and the reality of their horrific anti-Semitism. But it's just to say that isn't actually the main story in the rise of the Nazis, contrary to what we're often told. Well, I feel rather similarly about um, the BJP and Modi's regime in India, not to compare um, Modi with Hitler. Um, so I think that's an overblown comparison, but I think there are um, there are parallels. So I believe that it is a, we could describe it as a fascist regime. And I use that term in a quite technical rather than a sort of loose sense, loose and pejorative sense. Um, but of course, they the BJP doesn't, they exploit anti-Muslim sentiment in the same way as Hitler and the Nazis exploited anti-Semitism, but they don't run on that. That's not their program. Their program isn't, yeah. we need to appeal to these people because they hate Muslims and they will vote for us because they hate Muslims. No, they appeal to people on this idea of the Gujarat model that they will bring more success to India, that they will bring more status to India, that they will restore yeah. the kind of glory of the Hindu nation, etc. This is the stuff. This is the stuff that works. And, and I and I think this 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 obsessive focus on bigotry and prejudice, it's a very modern Western obsession. And we miss the main story when we only focus on that. You know, I mean, I, I mean, you know, I'm not familiar with with, with, with the situation in India as you are. But it, but it sounds absolutely the same as what I've been reading about with, you know, both with, with, with the rise of the Nazis. It's, it, it, you know, if you want to, if you want to get power, um, you, you promise status, you, you, you promise sort of great status to your people. Mm. Yeah, I want to just return for a moment to that um, um, idea that when we don't have status, we can actually, it can actually affect us physically and make us ill. Um, because that's another thing that you talk about in the book, studies that were done on the UK civil service and the way in which um, there were, the higher up you were, you were within that highly structured um, status game that is the civil service, the healthier you were. And that this isn't, this isn't related, this isn't a side effect of having enough money to um, take more vacations and eat more healthily, etc., or hire a personal trainer or something. This is act- actually directly related to the status itself. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, 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 you know, as I said before, that you know, in our brains we have these very highly, finely tuned status detection systems that are obsessively interested in our kind of place in the world. And th- th- there was an extraordinary series. This is called the Whitehall Studies, that was kind of led by a guy called Dr. Michael Marmot, and and he um, found, to, to, to their surprise, that, that as you say, um, the, the British Civil Service is a huge organisation, extremely stratified. And exactly when you went down that the kind of the ranking system, the, the further you went down, the 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 the, the, the greater your you know the, the the sicker you were likely to become, and the earlier you, you were likely to die, um, for, you know from, from various illnesses. Um, and, and as you say, you know it wasn't it's not about oh well the rich people could afford personal trainers and to eat organic food. You know it wasn't connected to that um, at all. It, 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 it was uh, it was something else, and, and and they found this effect in men found it in women, and they even found it in baboons. So in, in, in the laboratory, uh, they found in a baboon troop, troop it was the same, that, that, that you know, the, the, the higher the, the rank of the baboon in the troop, um, the healthier they were, and the less likely they were to fall, to, you know, to fall sick from various 
um, illnesses. Um, and, and they even um, conspired to change the hierarchy of the baboon troop. Um, and when they changed it, the health outcomes of the baboons changed in lockstep. They switched. Um, so, so, yeah, and so, so there are various sort of theories as to why um, this is. And I think the most compelling theory comes from this field of social genomics, a relatively new field, which looks at how our, the function of our genes um, changes, always affected by our social worlds, the reality of our social worlds. And this idea is that, that if, if, the, if the brain if the status detection system figures that we are, um, you know, n- not sufficiently high up the rankings, um, it, it will um, it will be more likely to to, to um, um, flip our kind of bodies into a state of stress, inflammation, prepare it for attack and potential problems, and uh, and these states, um, you know, evolve to deal with short term problems. They're very unhealthy if we are in a in them for kind of long periods of time. So, it's, uh, you know, they make us more li- li- likely to have things like Alzheimer's, cancer, heart disease, uh, and so on. So, 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 so yeah, um, the, the Steve Cole is a kind of world expert in social genomics. And, um, yeah, he, 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 he basically said that um, – he said, told me that being being beaten down in the rat race naturally changes what you expect from tomorrow, and that does seem to filter down into the way your cells prepare for tomorrow. So, so, so yeah, so, 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 so that's that's the extraordinary power of um, the status game. The the, the 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 brain kind of reads where we are in the rankings and prepare and prepares our body, um, prepares the changes, our, you know, the function of our cells and the body accordingly. How much do you think that has to do with the locus of control? i.e. Um, when you have higher status, you have also more control over, um, over, over how you, what you can do, how you live, etc. And the lower the status, the more subject you are, the more insecure your position is. Literally, the more subject you are to having everything snatched away from you by someone else. I think it's deeply, deeply interconnected. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's um, it's certainly you know, status isn't control, like lots of things. But 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 the more status you have, absolutely, the more power you have over uh, uh, over the world around you. So so yeah, I I think they're they're deeply connected. Yeah, you have a a wonderful passage here, which I've just found. I'm going to read this one moment, um, which is about. Well, I think the passage speaks for itself. Successful groups are status-generating machines. They thrive when they make status, both for their players and for the game itself. This is true in times of war and peace, and in modes of tightness or looseness. It's true in political games, in cults, in gangs, in gold rush movements, in corporations, in religions, in sports teams, in inquisitions, in mobs, in any game you might imagine. As we've learned, people need status. They look to their games to get it. A statusful woman or man who's leading a major game can certainly seem all-powerful when they're being cheered by hysterical crowds under blinding spotlights, gossiped about in world media, and deferred to by platoons of acolytes. But the vision is deceptive. It's the subordinates who are ultimately in charge. Leaders rent their thrones from these subordinates. If their formal position at the heights is to be assured and they're to remain comfortable behind their giant desk, 
they must earn true status in the minds of their players. This means succeeding in the grind of making status for the group and distributing it down through the hierarchy in ways that generally adhere to its rules. It might come in the form of titles or money or medals or secret knowledge or a ladder to heaven or the level above human or just simple appreciation. Even dictators have players to please, not least their military elites who ought to be rewarded if their reign of dominance is to continue. No game, not even a cult, can survive when every player but one feels hopeless and useless. Um, what a fantastic passage. Oh, thank you. But and it's very true. I mean, you know, it's true, it was certainly true of Hitler that, that, that you know, the Hitler adoration wasn't consistent. It, when he was earning status for the for the German nation, he would be treated as a god, but the, but support would fall um, for, for him when he wasn't, and and, and so he, you know, and it's the same with you know after the end of the Second World War with with Churchill. Churchill lost the general election a year after the end of the Second World War. He assumed because he was Churchill, of course, I wasn't going to be. I'm going to win the election. Why wouldn't I? But he wasn't useful anymore to the to, to, to the um, to, to, to the British people. So they they, they, they you know they, they elected somebody else. So so, so yeah, you know, so, so even. The, the, these incredibly successful leaders it's really about the group the group is in charge and, and whilst you are earning status for the group you, you know you're going to feel like you're going to feel like you you are indomitable but you're not indomitable no nobody ever is you, you know that, that that's the reality of being a of us as a groupish species yeah i mean un, uneasy rests the head that wears the crown um yes exactly yeah yeah it's it's um I mean, this is this is a little bit tangential, but um, it's just occurring to me now, and it's not something I know much about. But I was watching a video um, on YouTube. I will try to find it and um, and uh, put a link to it in the show notes, which was about um, autism. And um, the guy making the the video said um, the unusual thing about life as for him as a person with autism is that autists are not natural leaders because um, I, I guess they're unable, they're unable to confer, to attain and to confer that kind of status because of this mm. lack of charisma. Um, and that therefore they, this, this is all very kind of cod psychology, but maybe it's interesting. Therefore they seek kind of status in Games in which um, charisma is not important, mm. like things like chess and online games and well, science, competence, success competence games, success games, yeah. precisely. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it's it's not an area I know much about, but but yeah, that 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 certainly seems seems right. Yeah. So at the end of the book, you talk a little bit about what we what we should do to to be less. I guess not to be less enthralled enthralled to these status games because that that is inevitable, but to have just a a less unhappy time of it. Um, and you talk about we talked a little bit already about playing kind of looser games, you know, investing less of your ego in one specific type of status. Um, putting your eggs into different baskets, but you are, um, you have a few other suggestions, I believe, 
in the book and also in a couple of other interviews that I've listened to that you've recently done about the book. Yeah, so so there's a few there's a, there's a few different suggestions. You know, one of them is to play this kind of hierarchy of games. You know, as I said before, is uh, you know, so, so avoid the tight games, um, but 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 also you know play, play a few different games. So, so so ideally, you want a few different sources of connection and status. Uh, but but it's no good just sort of playing a few equally because it's actually quite hard to get status. You know, you, you, it's it, it, you've got to put some effort and some thought into that. So so I think the most appropriate thing is to play like, this hierarchy of games where you've got one yeah you've got one main game but you're kind of hedging it um, like a, like yeah it's, you've got other sources so if something goes wrong with that with, with that main game as, as it will inevitably from time to time you're not going to suffer this kind of existential collapse of you know who am I you know because because you can think about our you know our, our for, for every game we play we have an identity and that is an identity so you know I have an identity as a writer that is the main game that I play so when things go wrong and I lose status in that game it does feel like this existential like me myself and I are collapsing in some you know dissolving in some fundamental way that's how that, that's how kind of powerful it is so I think as much as it's basically don't be like me, <laughs> just have one game, you know, try and have this hierarchy of games. And, an, and another thing that sort of, uh, I think is... That's odd because I think of you as a bit of a role model, actually. I think I wish I were successful <laughs> as well. Um, but anyway. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's, that's nice to hear. Thank you. Um, the, the other one is, um, is, is about... Um, I think is interesting is, is is about just about the fact that we have this kind of status to give. I mean, and I think this is the extraordinary thing about status that it is it doesn't cost anything, and we have it to give other people. And um, we we can well, there's two things we, we can we can sort of quite jealously guard it as if by giving it away, we sort of giving some of our own status away, which just is, isn't true. Um, and also that that when we feel that our status is, is under threat, even in a kind of you know, banal and shallow way, like, you know, if we're um, treated less than ideally in a supermarket queue, for example, we can, we can, we, we automatically flip into this dominant state where we kind of get chippy and demand the restoration of our, of, of our status. We demand to be attended to with respect. And I, and I, th- and I think it's also useful to be really mindful of that and, and to, uh, and to try and, ha- and be in this mindset of, Actually, rather than responding with dominance, respond with prestige. Because if you if, if, if you respond by giving other people status, even if we don't think logically, logically they've they've deserved it, that's going to redound on us. You know, we're going to get a better reputation. And actually, I, I think it's a much better long term strategy than by constantly chipperly responding with you know these small moments of dominance and another one that i've not really spoken about um, um at all is, the, is this idea of, of seeing the world not in terms of right and wrong but in terms of trade-offs you know w- when i was doing the stuff about beliefs as status symbols because i think that's where we get ourselves in such tie ourselves in such knots as people especially you know no today no less than any other time but certainly today it, it, it is in the is in that we use beliefs as status symbols we use people's beliefs as ways of awarding or removing status, it's though, and it's those beliefs that we tend to get very upset and get emotional and go to war about. And actually, when you kind of remove yourself from that, you, you, you can see that most of the time, not all of the time, but most of the time, both sides in any sort of great emotional dispute will have possession of half of the truth. You know, the left tell the truth. Um, 
um, and the right tell the truth. Um, but they both have different kind of halves of the truth, uh, essentially. And, and, that, and that, 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 that's true in, in all sorts of moral and philosophical, philosophical debates. And actually, you know, rather than seeing these, these kind of um, epistemological kind of rows that we have about being wars over who gets to define the truth, it's actually about trade-offs. It's, it's about, um, you know, it's not a kind of zero-sum game, the truth often. It's about recognising... That, that both sides genuinely have part of the truth and both sides genuinely have part of, um, uh, you know, uh, tell a lie. And, and so, so I think that's a, that, that's it. That's a useful way of, of seeing the world in terms of not of right and wrong, but in terms of trade-offs. Mm, yeah. I think you also talked a little bit elsewhere about, um, about focusing on one's own kind of, morality rather than yeah, trying to gain yeah, status so in, from policing in, others that's right so, so so i think the easiest way of gaining status is 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 by 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 virtue i mean the hardest way of, of getting status is is with success with competence isn't, it, isn't you know, that, that interesting that, that, that's virtue difficult. is the easiest it's simple because all you have to do is judge someone and go <laughs> yes, yes. Look, at, look at you what did you do <laughs> and then we feel great you know so and, and that's partly why social media is so compelling because it's this enormous status generating machine. All we've got to do is like go at somebody, and we and, and we feel good. So, so it's so tempting to do that. And, and so in the book, I you know one of the, one of the things that I say is, is to to you know reduce your moral sphere, which is by you know by, by being mindful about how much of your moral thinking is directed at other people, and actually try to reduce that and think much more about your own moral behaviour rather than constantly um, you know buffing up your you know perceived sense of status by in your own mind at least sort of tearing other people down mm, yeah wise words well is there anything you hope that we would talk about that we haven't talked about or no i think that we've done that? A, that, that that's been a fascinating <laughs> chat thanks iona we've covered lots of lots of areas which i've not spoken about before so thank you it's it's been my absolute pleasure so all the information will be in the show notes what are you waiting for go read the book <laughs> if you haven't already. Um, and uh, thank you so much for joining me, Will. Thanks for having me again, Owen. I really appreciate that. Have a wonderful week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Two for Tea. Your patronage helps to keep this podcast alive and flourishing. Your support means the world to me. Stay well, stay happy and have a wonderful week.